branding, imaging, pizzazz, glamour. These expressions which pervade, which permeate the consciousness of the modern world, say something. They say something about the way we operate. For a product to sell, for a product to be appealing, it's not enough for it to be worthy, inherently worthy. It needs to be appealing. The same is true with Torah. Yiddishkeit needs to be appealing to be successful. But as with every brand, the brand can't be a facade. When a company, person, product does the smoke and mirror illusion thing, tries to be something it's not, it rings hollow. Torah and Yiddishkeit needs to be presented as beautiful as it is in fact. This theme, the role of image in Torah, I posit, is the meta theme of this week's Parsha, Parshas Emma. Because on the face of it, Parshas Emar seems to be all over the place. It deals with issues from the prohibition of the Kohen to become impure to various corpses to Balmum, the prohibition for a Kohen Gadol to worship when physically handicapped or blemished, to the prohibition for the Kohen to handle and consume impure Tame Carbonos, to the prohibition to offer blemished animals, and then the parish introduces the Moat and the holidays, and then the parish introduces the menorah of the Mishkan and the Lachmapan and the showbreads of the Shulchan. And then we have the story of the Makadal, the blasphemer. It seems all over the place. It seems like a hodgepodge of various passages and narratives. And the art to study of Parsha Samaret, like any Parsha, is to be able to trace the cohesive theme, bringing it all together. And this, we will see, is the theme of imaging in Torah, branding, impression. Because let's dig deeper and find that cohesive thread running throughout all these narratives in the Parsha. At the onset of our journey to find this cohesive theme, the first thing I look for is some echoing, reverberating expression which keeps popping up again and again in the parsha. And that is the expression, Chilul Hashem, desecration of the divine name. To point out a few examples of the appearance of this phrase in the parsha, in the narrative regarding the Kohen's handling of a corpse, it says, "Velo yechalalu shem Elohehem." They dare not desecrate the name of their God by doing such a thing. And later, in the narrative of the blemished Kohen, it also speaks of "Velo yechalal." Do not desecrate us, Mikdashi, my temple. That term "chilul" desecration reappearing. 
And then in the narrative of the imp- the avoiding carbonos which are impure, it's says, They dare not desecrate my divine name by engaging in impure offerings. And then later, in a general Kohen passage, it says, You dare not desecrate my name. Rather, You must sanctify the name. Here we have the expression, no chilol, no desecration, rather sanctify the name, appearing again and again in varying narratives in the parsha. In fact, this final pasuk we studied, v'lo sechalu Hashem kachi, is the source for the entire mitzvah called don't make a chil Hashem, rather make a kiddush Hashem. A kiddush Hashem in terms of the way you behave. Let the world know that a from Jew is a truly honorable creature. It all comes from this Pasuk. So you see that Chil Hashem is a major motif in this parsha. Don't desecrate the name. And what is deliciously satisfying now to note is the final narrative in the parsha we said is the story of the blasphemer, the Makalo Hashem, the fellow who verbally cursed the name, well, that the relevance of that passage is immediately apparent. This is a parasha all about don't desecrate the name. So therefore it ends and it concludes with the fellow who desecrated the name overtly and obviously when he actually cursed and blasphemed the name. So this is the parasha. It is a parasha which challenges us to appreciate what is this issue of Chil Hashem, of desecrating the name all about. Well, Chil Hashem has a lot to do with image and brand. Because truth be told, when one desecrates Hashem's name, whether through verbal blasphemy like the fellow in the end of the parasha, or a from Jew who does not behave properly, whatever it might be, when someone does such a thing, are they really harming Hashem? Huh. I imagine Hashem perched on the Kisiyah Kavod, metaphorically speaking, saying, you blaspheme me? You think you're hurting me? Of course, the essence of Judaism and Hashem himself are not affected by Chil Hashem. The issue of Chil Hashem is the bad rap, the bad perception. Hashem and Yiddishkeit need to be perceived, that must be perceived as something beautiful in the world in order for the great purpose, Yisgadal v'yisgadal shmei rabah, let the name be exalted to happen. When a fellow blasphemes, or for that matter, when a person who represents Hashem, a Torah Jew, behaves in an unbecoming way, doesn't harm Torah per se, it harms the image, it harms that brand, the grandeur, the attractiveness which Judaism must exude. And this is really the whole notion of shame, the name itself. This name that must be upheld, repeated throughout our parsha. This name which the blasphemer cursed. The issue of a shem, a name, is all about reputation. Certainly a name in a human sense. Your, your good name is your reputation. It is how you are known to the world. Well, Hashem having a shame means Hashem has a reputation to protect. 
while he himself is not dependent on anyone to acknowledge, for this world to be a godly place, Hashem must have a good reputation. And Hashem's reputation is protected by Torah and his representatives, the Jewish people, reflecting a good name. So imaging and branding is, in fact, critical. Our product, Torah, is impeccable. It's a winner. We just have to represent it the right way. All the, all the material is there. This is the example of where the company sits down with the branding coach, and the branding coach says, you've got all the material. Now we just need to present it properly. Yiddishkeit, the Torah's Chaim of Hashem, couldn't be better. We just got to present it properly. And that is the meta-theme of Parshas Emma. Image matters. From this perspective, we begin to appreciate various particular mitzvahs in our parsha, including some mitzvahs which, tr- which trouble some. Some people are troubled with the mitzvah in our parsha of Baal Mom. No blemishes. You, both the Kohen may not be a handicapped or blemished Kohen, a Kohen who has a physical disability, be it, a, be it that he's crippled, be it that he has a disproportionate limb to the rest of his body, whatever it might be, he may not worship. And likewise, an animal which we sacrifice, a carbon balmum, a blemished offering may not be sacrificed. Now, to modern ears, which are so primed in sensitivity to the handicapped, we live in an age where society has evolved to a place that you, do, you never, you, you dare not imply that a handicapped person is in any way deficient. You speak of people in terms of their limitations, whether physically or mentally, we are told as special needs. It's simply a special need. It's a specification. Just as we all have special requirements. The handicapped, whether mentally or physically, they are simply another designated special status. So from such a perspective, this modern-day 21st century orientation, how do we deal with a prohibition like Balmum? The handicapped Cohen, am I to believe that he is any less holy? Well, the answer is, of course, he is no less holy. An Ashama's an Ashama, and a Cohen's an Ashama's a Cohen's an Ashama. The issue is simply external. Externality. A Cohen is not simply a holy neshama, but he is a national representative on the national stage who must uphold the grandeur, the dignity of the avoda. This is the entire principle of the Kohen's beautiful attire, his beautiful garb. It is not to make him more holy, it is rather to exude that image of a princely practitioner of the Avodah. So we're a handicapped calling to worship. It is not the holiness of the Avodah which would be compromised. It is the image. 
it would come across that the avoda is done by struggling people, be they stammering people, be they crippled people. It comes off as an ineffective avoda. Just as even in the 21st century, with all our sensitivity and designations of special need status, we would never have a handicapped guard serve in Buckingham Palace, at least to the best of my knowledge. And that is not to discriminate. That is the issue of, well, you're representing the pomp and the dignity of the House of Windsor. So there's a certain external aura which needs to be created. This is true regarding the need for image and branding of an earthly mortal monarch, Holes, a secular monarch. So certainly the divine deserves equal positive branding, image. So it's simply that externality. You might think it doesn't matter, but our Parsha Amar focuses on this mitzvah of Balmon because this is the meta theme of our Parsha. Image matters. That, that is what Parsha Samar is all about. A blemished carbon or a blemished Kohen undermines the image, and hence it is specifically our Parsha, which harps on the prohibition of Balmar. From this perspective, I would like to unravel, unravel the mystery of the relevance of some of the other narratives in our parsha. We asked before, why does Parshas Hamoadim, why does the narrative about the holidays appear here? Well, the key is to trace the repetitive expression which keeps on appearing again and again in the Parshas Hamoadim, in the narrative of the holidays in our parsha, And that is the term Mikra'i Kodesh, or Mikra Kodesh, a proclamation of holiness. Many, many times the Torah says, both regarding the holidays as a totality and regarding each holiday, Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot, Rosh Hashanah, these are proclamations of holiness, Mikra Kodesh. You see that term dotting the text. What does a proclamation of holiness mean? Proclamation means a grand statement. The Mepharshim explain that a yantif is a day that we make a grand statement to the world. This day is special. On Pesach, we are not simply behaving like free men and women in an isolated corner, but no, we are wearing on Pesach big day antif, prominent attire. We are feasting in a public fashion and so forth because it's a mikra kodesh. It's a grand proclamation to be made to the world. We Jews believe in chayrus and freedom. And likewise Sukkot, and likewise Rosh Hashanah, each one of these Yom Tovim, in terms of their idea, says our parsha, the ideas of the Yom Tovim are supposed to be proclaimed to the world, so observe the Yantif in grand style. Well, that theme, Mikra Kodesh, weaves so seamlessly into the greater idea of our parsha. Image matters. And for the ideas of Yantif, ultimately the idea, the, these ideas regarding the uniqueness of the Jewish people, these ideas are too precious to be silent about, are too precious to be stowed away 
in the corner. They need to be proclaimed. They need to be glorified in the public eye, so to speak. And perhaps in Gullus, we've been in Gullus a long time, so this whole notion of Ashanda from the Gayim, keeping a low profile, which Jews had to do to get by, kind of took on a life of its own, I think. This almost pragmatic need for survival that people forget that actually a healthy Yiddishkeit, as the Torah is talking, is not one in which we wear our Jewish identity undercover, but actually one that we wear proudly. And certainly a Jewish people in Eretz Yisrael, with an independence and the like, with a Beis Hamikdash as things were supposed to be, it was not an understated affair. And Yantif was certainly not an understated affair. And all records we have, both in Torah and secular sources, speak of the great pomp and dignity of a Yantif. Mikra Kodesh, that is in fact what it is all about. And with this in mind, with this appreciation that branding and imaging has a place in Judaism as well, I would like to give thought now to the notion of authentic branding. As we said before, the smoke and mirror attempt at branding, to claim one is what they are not, rings hollow. I have to be, or I decide to be open in, in this respect, that I'm somewhat troubled when I hear, for example, some performers, be they Jewish or otherwise, who, in their attempt to attract attention, do all these strange spoofs, like some, suddenly they'll have a jungle theme to introduce their piece of chazanas or something. And the spoof just doesn't fit what the person is all about. It's like this attempt to attract attention by anything which catches the eye without the appreciation that you need this choreography, you need this synchronicity between the brand and the product. And it rings hollow if not. I would like to find this issue reflected in our parsha as well. That our parsha, the parsha's emmer, Imaging Matters, tells us Proclaim holiness. Be, hold it high because it is act because that proclamation is accurately reflecting the the glorious quality of Judaism. And I would like to trace this theme now by turning to a final narrative in our parsha, whose relevant which of which the relevance will now become apparent. And that is the narrative we mentioned before about the Shulchan and the Menorah. Our parsha highlights two particular vessels, the Shulchan and the Menorah. The Shulchan where the showbreads were placed every Shabbos and the Menorah upon which the Neros, the candles, were kindled. And the question is, why are these two particular vessels highlighted here? What does the menorah and the shulchan, what do the menorah and the shulchan as a duo represent? Well, the Gemara tells us that the menorah represents chachma, wisdom, 
this is this is a common motif throughout both Torah and culture that light represents wisdom. So hence the menorah represents Chachma wisdom and ultimately the Chachma of Torah. And actually for this reason, the Gemara records a practice that if you want to pray for wisdom, kol sheyachkin, yadrim, face the south, because the menorah is on the south side, so when one turns to the south side when they daven, that conjures up images of the menorah and hence inspires one to pray for wisdom. That's the menorah on one hand. On the other hand, the shulchan, says the Gemara, represents ashiras, wealth and materialism. That just as there is a menorah to serve as a symbolic conduit, that Hashem's bracha of wisdom will descend down to us, materialism, believe it or not, no less has a representation on the shulchan. That bracha, wealth, will come down. And therefore the Gemara continues, if a person wants to pray for wealth, he should face the north side because the shulchan was placed on the north. Now this issue of wealth, it seems to me, is not simply the materialism itself, but the sense of dignity which money and access to funds gives a person. I say that because the golden crown that was on the shulchan, the Zer Zahav, Chazal say, represents Kesar Malchus, the crown of wealth, the crown of kingship, of royalty. Well, that issue of Malchus dovetails beautifully with the material theme, with the, the issue of wealth regarding the shulchan. The shulchan is all about, really, the prominence a Jew can have through a sense of being an usher rather than being a pitiable ani. So here we have, in these two vessels mentioned in our parsha, the menorah with the theme of wisdom side by side with the shulchan, pride, materialism, malchus, a princely nature, it seems to me the parsha is placing them side by side to show a duality. We have chachma, we have wisdom, we have neshama. But that's insufficient. We also need the branding, the shulchan. A decrepit Jew does not reflect the chachma which he or she contains, the menorah which she contains. You need a beautiful shulchan, you need parnasa, the bearings of parnasa, the malchus, menorah and shulchan side, but, but you see it works both ways. Just as it's true, a menorah without a shulchan, wisdom without presentation is insufficient. Well, the other way is certainly true. Shulchan without menorah, presentation without what stands behind it, substance, is equally notable. We all know people who have the externals. But very quickly, they strike you as empty suits. There's not really anything therein. You need the content and the bearings to reflect it. Menorah and Shulchan, I'm suggesting the mystery is now uncracked. Why our parsha, the parsha about image, focuses on the menorah and the Shulchan side by side, 
that is to reflect you need both in synchronicity, the menorah wisdom along with wealth slash malchus slash princely bearings, what Shulchan is about. And my, my suggestion that the menorah and the Shulchan are not being presented as individual kalim, but as a duo here, wisdom with wealth, is solidified when we see the Torah is using very similar verbiage and language regarding these two vessels in the parsha. Let's have a look. If you kind of place these two narratives in the parsha side by side, it says regarding the menorah, Yarochas Haneros, arrange the candles, and it uses very similar expression regarding the shochan, Yarichenu, arrange the showbreads on the shochan. Likewise, it says, Lifne Hashem Tamid, the menorah should be in front of Hashem constantly, and then it uses the very same words regarding the shochan, Lifne Hashem Tamid. Finally, it says regarding the menorah, Al Menorah Hatahar, it is a pure menorah. Well, likewise, it says regarding the Shulchan, al Shulchan Hatahar. It's a pure Shulchan. The usage of this language is certainly not, not, not haphazard, but I, I suggest with an evocative intention that the Torah is coming to, you might say, bring together the Menorah and the Shulchan. The issue of Chachma, Neshama, Meaning, along with the issue of bearings, presentation, everything represented by the shulchan, these are supposed to be seen as two pillars of Judaism. Two kalim placed side by side in the Mishkan. They were literally side by side and in a parallel line. Once the north, once the, once the south. As reflected by this, their juxtaposed place in the text and even the common usage of the two in the text. With this understanding that the Shulchan in our Parsha, Parnasa, Malchus, really brings to the surface the greater theme of our Parsha, and that is the issue of image matters, I think we can explain a mystifying Medrash in our Parsha. As we said before, right after the narrative about the, shul- the menorah and the shulchan, the Torah then records the story of the makalo, the fellow who blasphemed and cursed the name. So Rashi records the Medrash's teaching. Why is the story of the makalo said here? That is because the blasphemer insulted the shulchan in particular, the showbreads in particular. You know what he said? He said, hey, the the lachem aponim, the showbreads, are placed on the shulchan and left on the shulchan for an entire week until they are eaten by the kohanim. They must be stale breads. Ha, ha, ha. That was his grand mockery. When in fact it was a miracle that the lachem aponim remained fresh and delectable for a week. Now, this medrash always confused me. Chazal are interpreting the story of the blasphemers here right next to Lacham Aponim because that's what he jumped on. It's just funny to me because forgive me for trying to enter the blasphemer's mind here. 
But if you would want to diss Judaism, if you would want to insult Judaism, is this what you pick on? The bread is a week old. If I was called to the task, God forbid, my mind would go in many, many directions. Why is he picking on the week old bread? There must be a symbolism here. Well, I think the symbolism is as follows. As we said, the lechem upon him, the showbread's entire function is branding, telling us that along with the menorah, the content of Judaism, the wisdom of Judaism, there needs to be pomp, dignity, parnasa. So the claim of the makalel that the lechem upon him is moldy is really a claim. The branding didn't work. The whole role of the Lechem upon him was to present. This is a nation and this is a God which is, takes care of itself and has what it needs. Uh-uh. The very Lechem upon him themselves are stale is really a way of saying the attempt at positive branding failed. I'm suggesting the statement the Lechem upon him is moldy is really another way of saying Yiddish trying to claim, the false claim, the false canard, Yiddishkeit has not been able to make it in the world. There might be a beautiful menorah. I'm not going to start up with that. The wisdom is beautiful, but it's not impressive. It's unimpressive in its presentation, which is really what the blasphemer was trying to do. That's what he's trying to do when he curses the name. He can't start up with God, but the name, as we said, he's trying to deflate the name, the grand name of Hashem. He's threatening the branding of Judaism the lechem upon him, but this is incorrect, as the sages say, the lechem upon him was in fact fresh, I suggest this is more than a statement regarding the culinary quality of the lechem upon him, but how that symbolizes, we get it right. Not only the lechem upon him, but Judaism in general is a delectable product if we only do it right, and we can get it right in a way which is impressive and attractive. A final motif, which I would like to suggest, regarding the menorah and the lechem upon him in our parsha, and thereby bring together the entire theme of the parsha image matters, I was thinking as follows. The menorah, symbolizing wisdom, can be seen as a brain. The lechem upon him, if it symbolizes presentation, can be analogized to the face. I've oftentimes thought a beautiful brain needs a beautiful face. And with proper upkeep, we all have a beautiful face to present, to exude the beautiful mind, the beauty of the mind which is behind it. Well, I was, I was thinking that the menorah and the shulchan side by side can be seen this way. The shulchan over here is the face, the presentation. The menorah in back of it is the brain. A beautiful brain needs a beautiful face. Well, I realize there is a splendid textual pattern to back this up. The word panim, face, keeps on appearing regarding the Shulchan and the Lechem HaPanim. And Ramban notes this point. Lechem HaPanim, translated generally as showbreads, literally mean face breads. Lechem HaPanim. 
Rashi explains that the shape of these breads was supposed to look like a face, actually. Face breads, isn't that interesting? And the terminology used regarding the shulchan, lifanai in front of me, has that word panim, notes Ramban. And likewise, the direction where the shulchan was placed, safon, the north side, safon, Ramban believes, has the etymological root panim. So Ramban simply notes that the word panim keeps on appearing regarding the shulchan. I think we know why now. Because the shulchan is all about the presentation. The presentation of a beautiful content, everything menorah is. It is indeed supposed to be that beautiful face. Displaying the display of the menorah, the brain which is right behind it. A beautiful brain needs a beautiful face. Well seen this way, the menorah and the shulchan towards the end of our parasha as a duo bring together the entire theme of our parsha. Judaism is a radiant product, is a menorah, menorah product. It shines, it's beautiful. But we need to let it shine to the entire world with a shein upon him. With a lechem upon him. With a beautiful face to exhibit the power, the attractiveness of a beautiful mind. May we all, all of us beautiful minds, which we all are, may we all always display a shein upon him as well. And I mean that in the broadest sense, with a confidence and with a grace, exuding to the greater world the proud people that we are, the proud individuals we are. We have what to be proud of, let's wear it proudly, let's Let's be Makata Shem Shemaim, as echoed throughout our parsha. We have the winning product. Let's get the branding right. Imaging matters. Parsha Samar now comes together resonantly, unified, cohesively, and with the most powerful, relevant message. Thank you very much.